0: Well, it is great to be with you this morning. I know I'm not with you in person, but with you in spirit and through uh, this technology. Always great to come to Tri-City. It's been so encouraging for me just to hear and see what has happened in the ministry of Tri-City over these past few years, and even in the midst of this season, to hear reports of what God is doing in and through this ministry is so encouraging. I'm uh, glad and honored to be part of you today and have this chance to open God's word with you. You're in the middle of a series in the book of Habakkuk, and so I do want to encourage you and invite you to open your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to pick, pick up where you left off last week, and while you're locating the passage and getting everything settled, uh, let me just tell you that I am a terrible sports fan. What I mean by that is that I have almost no faith in any of the teams that I cheer for. Maybe it's a conditioned response from growing up here in the Lower Mainland and the fact that all the teams that I cheer for find a way to disappoint me on an annual basis. So the Canucks have never won the Stanley Cup. The Mariners have never won the World Series. The Seahawks did find a way to win the Super Bowl. But as I think about that, I think about the disappointment that came the next year when they found a way to lose one on the final play of the game. My favorite NBA team is the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, We have made the trip down to Portland as a family on a number of occasions to go and take in a game. Some exciting games have come in the midst of that. On one of those occasions that we went down, uh, there was a dramatic 18-point fourth quarter comeback. It was amazing to see. But still, in spite of things like that, I have almost no faith. And uh, this past year, almost a year ago to the day on Mother's Day, in fact, last year, I knew that my wife would like nothing more than to sit and watch Game 7 between the Portland Trailblazers and the Denver Nuggets. And so we settled in as a family to watch that game together. And it did not start out well. In the first quarter, we were down by 12 points already. Second quarter started much the same. Denver made a couple of quick baskets. The Blazers were down by 17. And at that point, I got quite agitated. My wife told me, Lee, I think you should calm down. One of my sons said, Dad, Dad, they're only down by 18 points. There's almost three quarters to go. Don't give up. And in fact, they came back and they won that game. It was an amazing thing to watch and witness. What looked to me like sure defeat ended up as a victory. Now, that's a trivial example, but I wonder how many of us live like that. I mean, we take a look at the world around us, we see the direction things are headed in, we note who's got the power and the popularity and who doesn't. And as Christians, it can seem like we're marginalized, we're ridiculed, and in many parts of the world, we're persecuted. We're tempted to make judgments about how things are going to go based on the evidence we've seen so far. But what if it's only the first quarter? What if what we see now is not the whole story? Well, that was actually part of the answer that God gave to Habakkuk when he looked at the world and offered his complaint to God. Just to recap where you've been the last couple of weeks, the book of Habakkuk begins with Habakkuk crying out to God saying, Lord, do you see all the violence and the corruption in my nation? Are you going to do anything about it? And God answers and says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, those wicked neighbors of yours, and they are going to come and basically decimate the nation of Judah. That's the judgment I have rendered. And Habakkuk hears that and responds by saying something like, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. How does having a nation more wicked than us come in and defeat us help How could that possibly be part of your plan? Well, the passage we're looking at today helps us answer that question. So we're looking at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. But I'm actually going to begin reading back in verse 2, even though you covered verses 2 to 5 last week. Now, this is a passage that is filled with woes. But let me read the passage for you. It says this. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His great greed, or his greed, is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say woe to him? who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame to your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for the fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. As I said, this passage that we're looking at today is filled with woes. There are, in fact, five of them. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a house with blood. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. And verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. Awake. Now, issuing a woe was a common form of prophetic speech. Other Old Testament prophets used similar language to make their point. So, Isaiah chapter 5 is filled with woes. Woe to those who add house to house, field to field, until there's no more room. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The prophet Amos made similar use of the woe formula. He said, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. And what Isaiah and Amos were saying was, look, it might look like you are prospering and secure now in spite of your open rebellion against God and his laws. But make no mistake, your time is coming, wait for it. You know, Jesus actually made frequent use of the woe formula as well. Matthew 23 is a series of seven woes that he issued to the religious leaders of his day. But maybe the New Testament passage that most clearly parallels the one we're looking at in, in Habakkuk is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Here's how it reads in Luke. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. See, Jesus tells us that there is going to come this great reversal. Wait for it. So let's look specifically now at what Habakkuk says in this passage. And I've structured this passage around the five woes that Habakkuk issues. These are five things we need to keep in mind whenever we are tempted because of the appearance of things to think that evil is going to win. First thing we need to know is that the plunderers will be plundered. You know, there was a lot you could say about the ancient nation of Babylon. It was a mighty nation at this particular point in history. It was a growing empire. It was rapidly expanding. And the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were basically mopping the floor with all of the nations that they invaded. Because of this, the Babylonians had also become arrogant. They were taunting their victims. The end of verse 5 describes the Babylonians like this. It says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, you noted earlier in this book that it was God who raised up the Babylonians to be an instrument of judgment, but they never once stopped to think about that. They just thought they were so powerful, they could take whatever land they wanted. And when you have a series of victories, it's easy to become overconfident and arrogant. I remember watching an interview with Conor McGregor, the notorious MMA fighter, when he was at the height of his success. And since he didn't feel like there were any other fighters worthy of comparing himself with, he began instead to compare himself to higher beings. His his exact quote was this. Me and Jesus are cool. I'm cool with all the gods. Gods recognize gods. Now, I get that the guy is a showman and all of that, but pride goes before a fall. And I'm not sure I've ever been happier to see someone get their butt kicked inside the ring. This is pretty much what happened to the Babylonians. Verses six to eight predict their fate. Shall not all these, that's all these nations that they had plundered, Take up the taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long and leads himself or loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And what those verses are essentially saying to the Babylonians is, look, all those checks that you wrote at the height of your success, well, they're all about to come due. All those vanquished people that you exiled or executed violence against are going to rise up and they are going to smash you to pieces. It looks like you're winning now, but it's just the first quarter. The tables will turn and when they do, you better look out because you've made a lot of enemies. The plunderers will be plundered. Wait for it. Second, woe teaches us that places of security will crumble. So verse 9 goes on to say this. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So as Babylon mercilessly conquered nation after nation, they amassed a great deal of wealth. And with some of that wealth, they fortified themselves. And this verse uses the imagery of an eagle that sets his nest up on high where no predator could possibly ever get to it. Now, you might not be a huge fan of ancient history, but this period of history from about the 8th century BC to the 5th century BC is actually a fascinating time in world history. You had the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. All kind of jockeying for position. Who was going to be the world's superpower? And part of what makes this period so fascinating is that we actually have lots of historical records from this time. The nation of Babylon itself has a fascinating history that we're going to look at in a few minutes. Nebuchadnezzar II who lived and reigned during this period, built three walls around Babylon, the heights of which no one had ever seen before. The Ishtar Gate in the wall of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was claimed by some to be greater than any of the listed wonders of the ancient world. The Greek historian Herodotus claimed that Babylon surpasses in wonder any city in the known world. And he specifically praised the walls that were built around the city. The walls, he said, were 56 miles or 90 kilometers long, 80 feet or 24 meters thick, and 320 feet or 97 meters high. Now, it's generally believed that Herodotus exaggerated the majesty of Babylon But other ancient writers have also noted the magnificence of their walls. The walls were apparently wide enough for chariot races to take place on top of them. So imagine being surrounded by a wall like that. I mean, just imagine the sense of security that you might have. The walls were basically impenetrable. There was no way any foreign nation was going to assail Babylon by marching up to its walls and attacking. But in 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, led a successful attack against Babylon. It's known as the Battle of Opus. Since the walls to the city were impenetrable, Cyrus had his army divert water from the Euphrates River upstream, and he basically marched into the city underneath those impenetrable walls. All of their imagined security was gone in an instant. Now, you might say, well, that's a fascinating piece of history and all, but what does it have to do with me? Well, one of the things we ought to remind ourselves on a regular basis it's that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. There's no nation that can fortify, fortify itself against the will of God. The psalmist describes the nations who are hostile to God's purposes in the world like this. He says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What they're saying is, look, we don't need God and we certainly don't need his bounds and his restrictions. The psalmist then goes on to say this, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, See, the raging of the nations, the beating of their chests, and all of their bravado is comical to God. If you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, you might remember the scene where Captain Dan is high on the mast of a sailboat in the midst of a thunderstorm, and he is shaking his fist at God, yelling taunts at him. That's how foolish it is to think that we can set ourselves up against God and remain secure. We can't. But there's another way we can apply this, and I think one that all of us ought to think about. Proverbs 18, verse 11 says this, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. Now, most of us don't have the resources of Babylon at our disposal. Our fortifications are not quite as impressive, but there is a temptation for every one of us to think that our wealth somehow fortifies us or makes us more secure. Listen, I'm not even looking at my investment portfolio during the midst of this pandemic, right? Solomon, who should know about stuff like this, tells us it's all just imagination. It's pure fantasy. So can I just say to you that if you are putting your trust in your wealth and your perceived security... That all of it can be taken from you in an instant. Places of security will crumble. Wait for it. The third woe. This passage teaches us that the kingdoms of men will fall. But the kingdom of God will endure. So verse 12. Says woe to him. Who builds a town with blood. And founds a city on iniquity. Foundations that a city or a culture is built on matter greatly. You can build an impressive structure above the ground, but if it's not built on a solid foundation, it will crumble. And verse 13 goes on to describe this, and it, it, it's an interesting verse because of the way it reminds us of God's sovereignty. Here's what it says. It says, behold, Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? So what does it mean to say that it's from the Lord actually that people's labor for fire or that the nations weary themselves for nothing? Well, part of what that means is that God has determined ultimate futility for any merely human attempt at empire building. Now, I told you that the history of Babylon is a fascinating history. We actually first learn about the history of Babylon all the way back in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Genesis chapter 10 tells us about Babylon's founder. In one of those genealogies that we might be tempted, over to, to, tempted to read over very quickly and kind of, or just skip altogether, it says this. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, rehoboth Ur, Kala, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Kelna, that is the great city. So Nimrod is described as a mighty hunter and a man who sought to build his own empire. It tells us that his kingdom began in Babel. Now, Babel eventually became Babylon. And we know the early history of it from Genesis chapter 11. Many of you know the story of the Tower of Babel. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, the city was founded on the idea of the people making a name for themselves and establishing their own greatness. In that vein, one of the first building projects they undertake is the construction of a massive tower that they think will extend all the way into the heavens. The next verse in Genesis 11 is dripping with irony. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. See, they thought their tower extended into the heavens, but the Lord had to come down in order to see it. And the verse describes the tower as something that the children of man had built. So, the Tower of Babylon or of Babel may have been an impressive structure in its day, but it was a mere plaything in God's eyes, something built by the children of man. And the rest of that story goes on to describe the way God thwarted their enterprise and dispersed their people all over the earth. But that was not the end of Babylon. In the 2300s BC, Sargon the Great, the ruler of the Akkadian Empire, rebuilt the city of Babylon. Babylon was captured again in 1595 BC by the Hittites. It had obviously risen again from the ashes in the days of Habakkuk. But it would fall again when the Persian army invaded. And many of you will know that when Saddam Hussein was the leader of Iraq, he tried to rebuild the city of Babylon. But his attempt failed. But we know the ultimate end for Babylon. And whether it's referring to the literal city of Babylon or referring symbolically to Babylon as those who are opposed to God's rule is, I suppose, up for debate. But what is clear from the book of Revelation is that Babylon will meet its eventual fate. Here's how Babylon's end is described in the book of Revelation. It says, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. See, this is what happens with the kingdoms of men. They're built on a shaky foundation that will not last. And this is true of any enterprise that we might undertake. In the context of building a family, Psalm 127 begins with these words, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. See, the reality is that any house, any city, any kingdom that is built without God as its center is ultimately doomed to failure. You can note the contrast that appears here in verse 14. Verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, the nations weary themselves for nothing. They plan and plot and scheme and they build their little fiefdoms, but everything they build gets consumed with the fire of God's judgment. And the picture that comes to mind for me as I read those verses is building sandcastles near the shore of the ocean. Now, you know, if you If you want the really good sand, the kind you can actually build with, it needs to have some moisture in it. So you need to get as close to the water as possible. But we all know what it's like to spend hours constructing your sandcastle, building walls around it, maybe even digging a moat around it, only to have the the water come in or the tide come in and the whole thing be swept away in a short matter of time. This is what it will be like when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. All of the little man-made kingdoms will be revealed for what they are. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The kingdoms of men will fall. The kingdom of God will last forever wait for it the fourth thing we learn here is that the bullies will taste their own medicine verse 15 then says this behold or sorry woe to him who makes his neighbor's drink you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness now it's a bit Tough when we first read that verse to figure out exactly what is meant by making your neighbors drink so you can gaze at their nakedness. I mean, is this a condemnation of drunkenness, drunkenness and lasciviousness? Is it that the Babylonians, through such massive drinking parties, that their subjects were in a constant drunken stupor ripe for sexual exploitation? Well, what we know of Babylon at the time is that it was, in fact, that kind of culture. I mentioned earlier how the Persians marched into the city underneath its walls. The reality is that the Persians timed their attack to coincide with a huge Babylonian festival that occurred within the walls of the city. And these festivals can accurately be described as drunken orgies. But I don't think that's exactly what the verse is saying. That wasn't their main offense. Verse 16 then goes on to say this you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself, and show, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The phrase, the cup is in the Lord's right hand is an interesting one. The image of the cup is a metaphor that's used throughout the Bible. Here's an example from Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. See, the cup that is in God's hand is the cup of his wrath and the Babylonians will soon have to drink of it. The Babylonians were used to being in the position of authority. They made the nations drink from their cup of wrath. But now they were about to get a taste of their own medicine. And God has a much larger cup. Verse 17 says that the violence that they had done to Lebanon will overwhelm them. It will come back upon them. Again, it's important to think what this means for us as Christians. And I think it means at least two things. Maybe the first thing we ought to recognize as we think about the cup of God's wrath is that every one of us actually deserves to drink from it. We've all done that which rightly deserves the wrath of God. And this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. We do not have to drink from the cup of God's wrath. We don't have to drink from it because Jesus drank from it for us. Think about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, it says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the cup he is referring to is the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink on the cross. Jesus drank from that cup so we wouldn't have to. But there's a second way or second thing these verses mean for us as Christians. They tell us that we're on the winning side. They tell us that every bit of mockery and ridicule and persecution that's been carried out against God's people will be repaid. Everyone who has used their position of power to bully and shame and heap abuse on Jesus and his followers will one day have to drink from the bitter cup of God's wrath. It might not look like it at times, but we're only in the first quarter. The bullies will taste their own medicine. Wait for it. Well, The final thing to note from these verses is that all who trust in idols will be put to shame. And we see this in verses 18 and 19. And there it says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. There's no hope for a person who puts their trust and their hope in an idol because an idol cannot save. The Bible's consistent teaching is that it's not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that matters. Now, I recently watched the movie, All the Money in the World. It's based on the true story of the grandson of J. Paul Getty, who was kidnapped in Rome in 1973. J. Paul Getty was the richest man in the world in 1973, but he flat out rep- refused to pay the ransom demanded by his grandson's kidnappers. Now, to be honest, I've only watched half of it so far, but there's a heartbreaking scene in the middle of the movie The boy's mom remembers that her son's most valuable possession was a small statue of a minotaur gifted to him by his grandfather. It was thought to be worth $1.2 million at the time it was gifted to him. She finds it stashed in a shoebox in her son's closet. She takes it to Sotheby's auction, our auction house, She's looking to sell it quickly to come up with some of the ransom money. That's where her hope lies. The director of the auction house takes a look at the Minotaur and tells her the bad news. It was, in fact, just a trinket from the gift shop of the auction house. It's only worth about $15. See, the bad news is that many people are going to be in for the same devastating surprise when they discover that the thing that they've been trusting in cannot deliver them in the day of trouble. Crises have a way of revealing things, and they reveal what's important. They reveal the difference between necessity and luxury. They also reveal what we look to for security and comfort. Now, in the midst of this crisis, we don't want to operate in fear and think the worst, but it is a good time for us to evaluate what it is that we're putting our trust in. Where does our hope lie? Habakkuk says, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake and to a silent stone, arise. His point is that putting your trust in an idol will be of no use to you on the day of judgment. It will not be able to wake or rise and save you. Now we all know that. I mean, we we live in the West. We live in modern times. Who would be so foolish to trust in something carved from wood or forged from metal? But before we think this doesn't apply to us, it might be good to remember all of the foolish things we're tempted to trust in as though they can deliver us. I've already mentioned the foolishness of trusting in our wealth, but there are lots of other things that we are tempted to trust in that cannot save us. Elsewhere, the prophet Isaiah says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that it's profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame altogether. That's the fate of those who trust in what cannot save. But note the contrast between the idols that we are tempted to trust in and the Lord in verse 20. And verse 20 says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. See, God is not something that we make and then command him to do what we want the way we might with an idol. Instead, when we begin to behold God's majesty, we fall silent before him. This is what we read about in the New Testament as well. This will be the ultimate end. Wait for it. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Therefore God has highly, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And So if you've been tempted to put your trust in something that cannot save, I want to remind you that there will come a day when all of this will be reversed and all that will matter is what we've done in response to Jesus that his name might be exalted. So let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks today for your word. This is a difficult word. It is filled with woes. And Lord, we want to heed your warnings. We want to take to heart what it is you say to us. We pray that we would not trust in the wrong thing. We pray, Lord, that we would have the confidence to know that we're just in the first quarter. The rest of your plan while revealed to us in the pages of scripture is not something we've seen fully worked out yet. And so even as we live in this world, even as we watch the wicked prosper at times and the righteous suffer, God, would we know in our hearts that you are sovereign in control of all things, that you are working out your purposes in this world for your glory. And may we submit to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.